All right. Seeing I have not finished a lesson yet, I might as well start early. Um, I'm sure I'll keep up the tradition. But before we begin, let's begin with prayer. Father God, thank you for here and yet another morning to uh, look to your word, to look what it has to say and testify of, and the, the goodness is that it testifies of you, a um, loving God who has uh, paid the ultimate price in order to secure, for, secure us to you as a bride of Christ. And so, Lord, may we uh, be blessed by looking to um, the Gospels again today, but also blessed later on in worship as we hear from your word and hear it preached. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we, we ended in Luke, and I do want to quickly touch on some final points in Luke. Um, and I talked right at the end about how Luke, unlike any of the other synoptic gospels, he kind of has this period of slow motion where uh, it happens at the turning point of the gospel. The turning point is in chapter 9. Um, chapter 9 is the time in Galilee that Jesus had spent in Galilee. Uh, his ministry had been there up until this point the entire time. And um, there were all these important moments of divine revelation. And then in 951, we read the following. Um, uh, and I'm going to read from 51 to 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he's at this point of 951. Uh, most of if, you know, if I asked people at the beginning of this class, what's your favorite gospel? It probably would have been maybe the majority John. Then next biggest group might have been Luke. And all your favorite parts of Luke, if you're a Luke person, would be after he's turned his face towards Jerusalem. All these kind of rich stories that we've really, that are unique to Luke, um, are after this time. But so he turns his face to Jerusalem and he sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another bird, uh, village. And so Luke at this point begins to elongate uh, this journey. It wouldn't have taken long. Uh, to go from Galilee to Jerusalem as long as um, Luke dedicates. He's going to dedicate about 10 chapters to this period of time. Um, and so, yeah, the, some of the favorite content, the Good Samaritans in this portion, the prodigal son, really the, really the prodigal's mistitled. It's the story of two sons because the prodigal is really not the prodigal. It's the elder brother who's the true prodigal in one sense. Um, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the story of also then Zacchaeus up a tree, all these, all these rich areas. And so um, it's important to consider um, also in these narratives, when we get these parables, consider the real life narrative events that are happening in unison with them. So for instance, the Pharisee and the tax collector happens in chapter 18, that that kind of parabolic story, some debate. Maybe it was a, a real occurrence that Jesus is referring to, but probably a parabolic story. 
Then in chapter 19, we have Zacchaeus, who is what? The tax collector up the tree. He is the tax collector. He is, he is that guy. He becomes a representation of it. Um, when we get to the prodigal and such, uh, those stories, this is all surrounded by Jesus eating with sinners and the scandal of eating with sinners. And so, obviously, the prodigal, where the elder brother doesn't want to go in to celebrate the father's feast that he has prepared for the, for the prodigal son, the elder brother doesn't want to eat in that feast. And there's a tension in that story. It purposely ends without giving us the conclusion. Um, we don't know if he eats, but there's a, there's a larger um, narrative element that's also being that's linked to the parable. Um, with that chapter 15 of Luke, uh, the numbers intensify. So um, the, how many sheep out of the sheep is one out of a hundred. Then there's a lost coin that's one out of ten, I believe. And then there's one out of two sons. So uh, in quick succession, there's an intensification of the parables. Um, and all the all the parables have this celebration. There's a there's a celebration when we have the lost sheep restored. There's a celebration when you find the lost coin. There's a celebration when the um, prodigal son comes back uh, to the father. And so um, an intensification is is a part of it. Matthew, I mean Luke and Matthew both, but. Uh, They'll often, the gospel writers will use numbers to convey theological points as well. Um, just, uh, okay, so Zacchaeus. Um, then eventually, uh, uh, I mentioned earlier, Paul's, uh, Luke's portrayal of the Last Supper is probably, uh, is, is probably where Paul's theology uh, enters in quite a bit, but it has a lot of parallels. It's a fun study to do. I'm not going to do it today uh, to look at what Paul says in Corinthians and look how Luke words it. But um, I would argue the most important theological contribution that Luke gives in his gospel uh, is is found in chapter 24. But before I get to that, let's get, read quickly. Let me quickly read. Uh, chapter 18, verse 31. Remember when we looked at that last time, I looked at Jesus prophesying for the third time about what he was going to do. And I read Matthew's account. Matthew had sort of these the basic facts of Jesus going to Jerusalem. Uh, does anybody remember what Mark emphasized in that account? That Jesus was what? When he was, when he was headed towards Jerusalem, he was, Jesus was where in the group? He was in the front, and it was worrying all the disciples that Jesus apparently never led from the front as they walked from city to city, but they start responding in fear when they see Jesus is, is in front and, and probably walking at a very quick pace. Um, Luke is going to talk about the same account, and the same account that Luke has, he's not going to mention Jesus being in the front in that uh, moment. He's going to pull out a different detail. And a detail that he's going to further bring out in chapter um, 24. So beginning in 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, 
We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Then this is Luke's contribution. That's, that's very much like Matthew's, um, those, those verses. Uh, but he adds this in verse 34. But they, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So Luke wants to emphasize that the disciples were entirely unaware of the things that Jesus was teaching them um, about this, of what he had to come to suffer. And, and this really touches on the fact that Luke's gospel is so much a gospel of talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, obviously, in the book of Acts, in one sense, if the four gospels talk about the, the work of, in Jesus' life, uh, the book of Acts itself talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, um, obviously, uh, in, in a unique way and emphasizing it. But, um, but think about, for instance, when I was an unbeliever, when I was growing up in Rome as an unbeliever, uh, I thought Abraham being told to go up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac was just absolutely awful. I mean, that, that God seemed like a bully to me. He was just a bully. Why would you ever ask that of someone? And then, of course, when you're a believer, you realize, wow, this is an amazing passage. This is, this testifies of what the Father has done from Christ. He did not spare his own son. This is a, this is a beautiful testimony. And so Luke really wants to make clear that without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to understand these things. Um, and so he has these little moments like in Luke 18.31 that he has it. But it, it really boils down in, uh, in chapter 24. This is a thread. This is where the thread that Luke pulls on really gets uh, elaborated. And I'm going to begin um, in verse 13. This is after the resurrection of uh, Jesus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, and about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Notice the parallels with earlier 18. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village in which they were going. He acted as if he was going even further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. They really don't know who he is still at this point. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? while he opened up the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were uh, with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So the key contribution that really happens, and I know it was a long, probably the longest passage I've read in this series, but is that the Bible gives us our own hermeneutic lens. It it allows us uh, to understand that all of Scripture ultimately testifies of Christ. It's not that there there are not... uh, It's at the forefront of Scripture. And um, this is what Reformed, being here in a Reformed church, Reformed theology emphasizes this, that Scripture interprets Scripture, that when we look back to, you know, David slaying Goliath, that's... Not, you know, dare to be a David story. That's about, ultimately, it points forward to the crushing of the head of the serpent that Christ will do upon the cross. Here we have Goliath, who in the Hebrew there is covered in scale armor, who gets his head crushed, and he is slain because Christ, and it's a, it's a pre-look at Christ. It's a rehashing of Genesis 3, uh, 14, 15. And... Um, and that promise and those themes just repeat over and over again in Scripture. We could just go through Genesis and we could go through Exodus. And we could just move on all of Scripture. We could time and time again. It's not Pastor Tim is forcing the issue. We can find Christ in all of Scripture. We can find, you know, and, and Spurgeon would say, you don't even bother preaching if you can't make a road to Christ in the Scripture. Don't preach the sermon. Uh, you might as well not preach at all. And that distinctive is really what is unique about Reformed theology and Covenant theology, and really a distinctive that chapter 24 of Luke is very important uh, for us saying this is the legitimate way to read Scripture. We don't read Scripture creating a lot of divisions and, and these massive charts of all these eras, and no, you can't understand this portion because that portion's only for this little nation, and, and that portion is for this no, uh, there's a larger hermeneutic that these things point to Christ. And so um, it's lost in the crowds. So, all right, um, with that, um, and again, uh, that mystery, because if you just had read Luke, you haven't heard much about the paraclete. You haven't heard much about, yeah. And so the mystery of when your eyes will be opened is further fleshed out in Luke's second volume in the book of Acts when we really see Pentecost and we see all these new communities come to living faith and then at the end of the book of Acts it's 
Luke is pointing out how, while the Jews have really stopped converting, now the Gentiles are coming in droves. Um, And so we we see the work of the Holy Spirit. So Luke's gospel has um, a lot of, a very important thread about the Holy Spirit working throughout it. Now for John, summarize the most probably loved uh, gospel in 30 minutes. I'm sure I'll do great. Um, <laughs> for John, I'm going to lean heavily on, and it's cited at the bottom of the handout, Mark Strauss' work on the gospel. He has a book called The uh, Four Portraits, um, One Jesus, which is helpful when you look at the gospels. On your handout, I did write the seven signs. There are actually eight signs in the gospel of John. The eighth sign is after the resurrection, though. So it's the uh, feeding of the fish, the miraculous catch. Um, But uh, when I've talked about this series and how we should look at everyone drawing their own portrait of of the the Gospels, we should, though, recognize that John John seems to know he's painting last. And he actually, he writes things like in chapter 3, he talks about how John the Baptist had not yet died. He assumes you know that. But he never tells you about John's death in his own gospel. We'd have to go to the other synoptics. And so there's there's debate on how to read John, but I think John is intentional about uh, how he has he's read the synoptics and he's adding different elements to that and different commentary. His is the most theological uh, of all the uh, gospels. Um, And he has uh, quite a bit of uh, uniqueness in it. Um, John is also a a hard Bible for those who want to believe in red letter edition Bibles. Because um, there are a lot of places. The most notorious is the conversation in chapter 3 between Nicodemus and John. Where we don't know where Jesus' words stop and John's words begin. Because John kind of serves as a narrator. And the point of that is it's actually a helpful gospel to understanding all the scriptures God profitable. That if we really want a red letter edition of the Bible, it should all then be red letters. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, couple unique literary uh, features. 90% of John's gospel is entirely unique. Um, there are no exorcisms in John's gospel, no casting out of the demons. There's no parables. Uh, Jesus speaks not in parables, but in these kind of wisdom uh, discussions, these long discourses and dialogues against his opponents. There's no tables fellowship with sinners. There's a key synoptic phrase. I was talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, uh, depending on which gospel you're in in the synoptics. Um, uh, that only occurs twice, the kingdom of God in, in John. Um, of Jesus' eight miracles uh, in the Gospel of John, five do not occur anywhere else. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then there's just these conversations with Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the raising of Lazarus uh, that are just unique. Um, so, yeah, there's just a, a lot of unique stuff. Uh, in terms of the central theme of the book, John wants to emphasize to you that Jesus is the divine Son of God who reveals the Father. 
providing eternal life to all those who believe upon him. The basic outline of John by Mark Strauss is there, and it's one that there's uh, a lot of agreement on, that John begins with his prologue, and then there is the book of signs, where we see those, the seven ones listed uh, in your outline. And then we have the book of glory, and then we have an epilogue. Um, John has an emphasis of Jesus as unique to his, uh, not unique to his, but he really emphasizes the identity of the son as the one who reveals the father. Um, He has the most simple vocabulary. Pretty much all seminary Greek courses have you begin with John 1. Um, He's very simple, uh, yet he has a deep theological uh, significance. Um, often the Gospel of John's described like a shoreline where, yeah, the children can wade in the early shore, but the deeper you go into the ocean, that the deeper, I mean, the farther you go into the ocean, the deeper it gets, is how John's Gospel is, is talked about. Um, he uses, yeah, very clear vocabulary. He's, he's the Yoda of synoptics. He can use simple words, but good by big points. Oh, we have the Gospels, not synoptics. Um, key terms that John likes to use over and over again are life, believe, abide, light. Um, he calls his miracles signs. Um, in Matthew, we talked about how uh, Matthew often would have contrary individ- or individuals who are responding to wisdom in different ways, highlighted, I, I said, by like Peter and Judas, who both make a similar stumble, but one has the wisdom to repent, and one just feels guilty for it. Uh, John has a lot of that in his Gospels as well. Um, he, he will come out and um, essentially say people are of God or of the world. He has, uses the spiritual symbols of water, light, bread, shepherd, gate. Um, John has the seven I am statements of Jesus. Uh, just to be clear, though, the I am statements are found uh, elsewhere, but John really, again, clarifies what's going on with that and, and talks about unique instances where Jesus boldly declared uh, who he was. Um, often uh, when people, while Jesus doesn't speak in parables in John's gospel, they misconstrue, they misunderstand him at first. Um, we're going to pick up on one, uh, we'll quickly look over at Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Um, they both show this. And he has long dialogues. Uh, All the Jewish festivals are, all the major Jewish festivals are in John, and Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of the Jewish festivals. Um, And John portrays himself as um, an enigma of sorts. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't like to name himself. Um, So he calls people to a faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and he has, well, um, Luke leaves us understanding kind of the hints of the Holy Spirit, and he'll further that out in Acts. Um, John calls, and John has Jesus uh, refer to the Holy Spirit as a paraclete. But we say a paraclete, which means helper, but actually he says another paraclete, another helper. Um, and so the importance of that is that's implying that, of course, our first paraclete in the Trinity, the one Trinity, is 
Christ. Because Christ is also a paraclete. Because he, he also has come in order to save us. And so um, we often will say, if we can you know, just say the paraclete, we immediately think Holy Spirit. But actually how Jesus phrases it, he says another paraclete. So, um, all right. Okay, with that, uh, yeah, let me, I want to get into a couple fun sections. So, all right, I need, I'm going to pick on the Andersons. Andersons, you both have Bibles? Okay. Mark, you're going to read the part of Nicodemus. And, yeah, that will ha- we'll have you uh, be the Samaritan woman. All right, so so Mark, can you read for us verse uh, chapter three, verse three? Yep. Okay, so Jesus has now sparked interest. He's he has a spiritual metaphor he's using here, and Mark's better half. <laughs> four ten. If you could read four ten. Okay, so we had Nicodemus, new birth. You know, now we have um, Samaritan woman, living water. Let's see the responses. All right, Nicodemus, verse four. <laughs> oh yeah, you're gonna. I'm gonna keep calling on you. Yeah, verse four, three, verse four. Yeah. Yeah. Now Nicodemus is being snarky, by the way, really sarcastic, kind of. You know, he's he's a. Uh, he's he's uh, basically saying, "Hey, I'm I'm a top dog in this community." Are you? Um, I do think Nicodemus eventually becomes a believer, but I think this first encounter, uh, it's clear it happens in dark. I think the darkness there isn't so much, and it's often taught this way. Nicodemus is worried about others seeing him, so he goes in the dark. No, he's he's dark. His mind is darkened. He hasn't been enlightened to the things of. Christ. But so Nicodemus is a little snarky. All right. Let's check in on the Samaritan woman. Uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So she too is also kind of confused. Maybe being a little snarky. Um, you, know, you don't even have something to get water with, Jesus. What are you talking about? All right. Now, let's check in on Nicodemus, verse 5. Jesus Okay. So Jesus is giving clarity to that moment. He's, he's, he's explaining the spiritual truth that he's trying to talk about. Now, Terry, if I can get you to read verse 13 and then 21 through 24. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
and then 21 through 24. So Jesus is clarifying. All right. Checking on Nicodemus again. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Yeah. Uh, checking on the woman at, at the well. Verse 15. Yeah, and then, all right, Nicodemus in 10 through 12. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen. But you did not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I come to heaven? So again, here and this is a this is a a big kind of throwdown moment in one sense. Uh, you know, uh, Strauss calls it a mild rebuke. This is pretty notable for a guy who this would be like going up to you know an R.C. Sproul type, a Tim Keller type, or what have you, and being saying you don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's a, it's a notable challenge, of course. He doesn't know what he's talking about compared to Jesus. Um, and uh, I think Sproul said if I was, what, 60% on the right track, or I forget what percentage, he'd be he'd be impressed. Uh, so more, co- and then Terry already read it, but that verse 4 through 21 through 24, when he talks about the temple, is the clarification to her kind of mild rebuke. Um a return to her. Then let's look at, um, if you can read uh, Nicodemus's part for 13 through 21. Jesus is going to identify himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God, and of light in this passage. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. If Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be. So here, and this is again why it's hard to have a red letter Bible, especially in this Nicodemus interaction. It seems like that's actually all of Jesus is now most what most commentators uh, feel. 
um, because it has these strong parallels with chapter 4. But Jesus has now identified himself. He's clarified himself. And this is how the teaching of John's gospel is, that he has these kind of quick ideas, and then there's confusion, and then there's clarification, and there's a little more confusion, and then there's a quick quick illustration. Uh, to see it with the Samaritan woman, uh, if you could just read uh, verse 26 for us, Terry. So yeah, he's the Messiah. And then of course, why I don't think Nicodemus is a believer at this moment, uh, there's no um, really detailing of what, how he responds. Uh, later on in the gospel, uh, we'll hear from him again, but, um, but not at that moment. Whereas the woman, what does she end up doing? Tara, you might still have it open. What does she end up doing? Yeah, so she responds in faith. She becomes a little evangelist in one sense. She 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 doesn't even bother with her water. She just she's very excited about it. And so, um, yeah. So that's that's really some of the discourse on how uh, Jesus, um, uh, how John portrays Jesus. There are three types of teaching that John has. Uh, he has personal uh, interviews. There's public debates. And then there are uh, these private teachings. Um, uh, private teachings would be an example of the farewell discourse. In terms of um, uh, Jesus, John doesn't like to call Jesus' miracles miracles. He calls them signs. And, and, and why he does that really is because um, they point to who Christ is. And so in Jesus' ministry pre-cross, he has seven of them. Uh, I listed them on your handout of the seven uh, pre uh, pre the resurrection. Um, we have the changing the water into the wine in chapter two, the official son healed, the healing of the disabled man at the beside a pool, the feeding of the five thousand, the walking on water, the healing of a man born blind, and Lazarus raised, which uh, is the last one before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the eighth sign that he has in his Gospels is that miraculous catch of fish in chapter 21, that concluding chapter, um, when the, uh, he meets up with the disciples in Galilee. Um, as for metaphors and uh, symbols, um, as for metaphors, there's seven I am statements that uh, also of the, uh, of the Gospel. Jesus calls himself, I am the bread of life, the first, and uh, John makes clear that this bread of life teaching was hard for people to receive. Many left him at that point, the, the light of the world, the door, uh, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and then the true vine is the last one. So for those without faith, they can't understand it. They're confused, much like Nicodemus was confused much like the Samaritan woman at first was confused. There's confusion with these I am statements. And then those with living faith ultimately um, come to understand, come to know. And so, um, and, uh, so that's, that's how John really likes to uh, portray that. Um, 
So there are also moments where, like Jesus, for instance, says, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Um, But also, when we looked at the synoptics, where was most of the ministry taking place? Yeah, Galilee. Whereas John has a lot of the moments of Jesus actually in Jerusalem, a lot in the Judean world. He, he, he kind of switches the map. If anybody switches the map, that's him. Um, also, uh, John uses irony quite a bit. He uses those misunderstandings, um, a lot of sarcasm. Um, and to do that, I'm all right. I want to quickly go on the first couple verses of John now, because there's an interesting discussion on the first 18 verses of John. Uh, they're written in a chiastic form. Uh, where do we normally find chiasms in Scripture? What book of the Bible would that be? What's that? Uh, yeah, there's some in, some in the prophetic text, but also, I think I heard it back there. The one I was looking at, Psalms. Psalms often have a chiastic structure. And there's actually a debate whether this was an early church song. Um, they wonder if this these first 18 verses might have been sung because of the chiastic structure. Um, and uh, we'll kind of, let's just kind of quickly look over it. Uh, I don't have, one second here. I'm going to have to, uh, can I borrow your outline? I'm sorry. Okay. All right. I can't find my notes. So we have, the identity of the mission of the world. So I'm going to read the first five verses. This is the identity and mission of the world statement. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so that becomes one component. It's going to be matched up with verses 16 through 18, ultimately. Um, But next we have a testimony of John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God. So continue on in verse 6. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So that's the statement of John. Now, moving into the chiasm, we're going to have this statement of the incarnation of the word. It's from 9 to 10a. The true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world, he was in the world. And then we have uh, a response to the world, the, the response to the word. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So then we're going back then to the incarnation of the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we have, to continue this chiasm, another statement about John the Baptist in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. 
And then we have this conclusion, the identity and mission of the word. Um, And that's verses 16 through 18. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So um, kind of a, I think an interesting thing that that little we've how many times have you read that? I know I, I never picked that up until a theologian pointed that out to me that it actually mirrors itself and it would have at least been very easy for people to memorize. John's probably writing that so that they can memorize this this clear statement of Jesus' divinity of understanding who Christ is, but he he also, in this chiasm, uh, it probably was something sung by the early church uh, in its structure. Um, Yeah, so. In in John's gospel, uh, I'd already touched on this, but really has the dualism of the children of light, children of darkness. Uh, the The children of light believe on the sun, um, they walk in the light, they live by the truth, they have eternal life now, they will never perish or are from above, whereas those children of darkness, John portrays them as they reject the sun, they walk in darkness, they follow a lie, they are condemned already, uh, so the judgment in their life is already impacted, they abide in God's wrath and they are of the earth. Um, I mentioned also earlier about how... Um, John wants to show Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish festivals, the first of which is the Sabbath in John 5. Um, we, we often just think of the Sabbath as something we have to do, but that's actually not it. Um, you know, where does secular society get the idea that you shouldn't work seven days a week? You should have a couple off days. You should have at least an off day. Uh, that actually comes from the Sabbath idea of God. That's a That's a biblical idea, but... He shows himself as a Sabbath in John 5. In John 6, when he's talking about himself in the flesh, he, he talks about how you he's the bread of life. He's basically identifying himself as the true Passover. In John 7, 8, he talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. And actually in John 10, while this is not traditionally uh, one that is, it's not in Scripture, the, this tradition came during the time of uh the time between the Testaments, uh, the Hanukkah itself in John 10, um, he's shown as a fulfillment of even Hanukkah. Um, there is that part in uh, John, starting in John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, that um, like we talked about the end of Mark last week, um, it's probably not from John. Um, however, when it comes to this text, uh, well, there's a part of Mark at the conclusion that is probably written notably after. Uh, this one probably was written at the time. A lot of early fragmentary gospels actually have it in the Gospel of Luke. And the, and the type of Greek in this text mirrors Luke's much more. Um, and so there's a strong confidence that the story of, of the woman in adultery is uh, a valid story. Uh, but uh, it, it definitely sounds like Jesus. But 
when it comes to the actual language of that, and as they look at fragmentary evidence, it looks like that might have been in Luke. Um, and so it's one of those things where they don't know to do. But ultimately, um, even if it wasn't in the Bible, uh, there's nothing... There's nothing in that account that would change who Jesus is or who Christ is or what have you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think to sum up those two parts of Scripture, I think that very end part of the Gospel of Mark is an add-on later in the point. I, I do believe there's probably a, the, the woman, uh, the woman uh, saved from the stoning is probably an apostolic record. Um, I think there's better evidence of that. Um, John has the man born blind in chapter 9. That healing of a blind man would have been, uh, Isaiah directly points out how that will be the, the sign of the Messiah to come. And so that interaction, that wordplay that happens there, uh, when the Pharisees get angry at the man, uh, they should have clearly known that, uh, that he was uh, saved. Uh, one other last kind of thing I want to bring out is there's a lot of myths about Mary Magdalene, uh, especially from the, the Gospels I thought I'd quickly touch on. And uh, the Gospels do not actually say she was a prostitute. Um, she's not said to be the woman who wipes Jesus' feet with her tears. She certainly, of course, didn't marry Jesus or anything like the Da Vinci Code talks about. Um, but it, it, this tradition of Mary Magdalene maybe being a prostitute uh, comes from um, really Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, in the 6th century, he delivered a sermon, uh, and uh, he basically conflated all these stories and made them all the same person. And that tradition's kind of uh, kind of sprung up, so we often think of Mary Magdalene as a harlot. Uh, what we do know about Mary is she was one of the women disciples who supported Jesus financially. We know that from Luke chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. Uh, she had seven demons cast out of her. Uh, we know that from Luke 8, verse 2. She was with the other women at the crucifixion. That's accounted for in all the Gospels but Luke, but all uh, three of the Gospels writers mention that. And at the burial, both Mark and Matthew mention that. And then the empty tomb is mentioned at Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And um, uh, with the women, and then John also brings up how Mary went to the tomb alone as the first witness. So um, we don't want to understate Mary, who Mary Magdalene is, but uh, she obviously is very important. But uh, we also don't want to say she's definitely a harlot or those sorts of things. We don't, we don't know on that. So I just thought I'd go over that. I found that fun in my study. Uh, but theological themes, John has the revelation of the Father through the Son, major theme of his, salvation as knowing God um, in the eternal life in the present, and um, and then the Holy Spirit as a paraclete, as a helper. And so that fourth uh, gospel, it, uh, it clearly states that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that many of you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. I think I mentioned this last class, so that's why I didn't spend too much time in it. But I am pretty sure that when Paul started painting his final gospel, 
he understood it was the final gospel. Uh, there were a lot of smaller writings that people weren't trying to be malicious. They were trying to write down stories from their own interactions with Jesus. Um, but John, I think, and when he says at the end of the Gospels that we could fill up all the libraries in the world with the stories of Jesus and all the books kind of contain all the, the glories, I think he's doing the same thing he does at the end of Revelation, is that he's closing the Gospel testimony. He's saying that there are no Gospels beyond this Gospel, uh, that the canon is closed. Uh, I didn't get into it much today, but um, there are clear times... Um, where John is interacting with the synoptics and the theology of the synoptics. And so he's trying to, uh, I think, purposely give much new material. But, um, but uh, he's closing, I think, the canon. So when we read that end of conclusion in John, it's almost like the end of Revelation, where this is the full testimony that we are giving to the life of Christ, and it is that is finished. And then John also, um, I believe, not only closes the canon, but closes the entire can, canon of the Gospels with the canon of Scripture uh, when at the final chapter of Revelation, when he says, do not add to this book. I don't think he's just speaking of Revelation. He's speaking of the 66 books that we have come to uh, see as Scripture. So with that, um, any last questions? No, a lot of material. Chiasm. So, oh, my bad. It's like an A, B. I think that's a, a four-level one. The one in that structure. So, this will parallel this, which will parallel this, which will parallel this. And often this will be the center. Um, and often in the Psalms... If you want to find the preaching point, the main point of the message, what you're going to title it, if you're going to preach it or you're going to teach on it or what have you, you look at the chiasm, find the middle, and in the middle is the main theme quite a bit, um, the main point that they want you to emphasize. But the theology matches up as you move down the chiasm. And so they're parallel. So the, the B1 was the statements of John the Baptist in that beginning. Um, the entry of the word. What was the C one there? I forget. The incarnation. So they all they all match up, and so John um, does it. Actually, I I totally missed the park on Luke, but Luke's introduction he has several songs to begin. Uh, sometimes Luke has been called Luke's gospel of musical. Because he begins with Mary singing, Zacharias singing. Uh, there's all these songs. Um, but John also begins with this song. So he wants you to kind of memorize this, at least as a poem. Uh, there's a poetic element. But we have this a lot of times. I mean, read Genesis 1. Genesis 1 has poetry in it. There, there are some beautiful poetic structures about the days and the light and the darkness and the light and the, I mean the day time. So, um, yeah, but John, John has one as well. So, uh, all right. Any other thoughts, questions, concerns? Sorry. Yeah. So, um, with that, let us uh, compare. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to uh, look to your Gospels and um, teach. And I know I wasn't always clear. 
Um, just uh, pray that you uh, bless that which was from you and that you had for us here today. And I pr- pray uh, a double blessing on worship itself and the preaching of the word from Pastor Tim. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.